Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 19, 1 Samuel chapters 12 and 13. Last week, things were very historical in presentation as we saw the torch pass from Samuel to Saul. And it was necessary to explain the behind-the-scenes political and social realities that pushed Israel towards that decision that the leadership made. And equally important, we saw the moment at which the era of the judges ended and the era of the kings began at the ceremony at Gilgal. Now this week, we're going to peel back the layers on a couple of wonderful God principles and patterns buried deep within this story that actually affect our lives on an almost daily basis. Now this torch passing in no way pushed Samuel from the scene even though Saul was elevated. Samuel's function merely changed. Instead of being the visible political and thus military leader of, of Israel, Samuel was now the power behind the throne. Not only had he publicly anointed Saul as Israel's first king, but he would also make it clear that the new protocol for governing Israel was that Samuel would retain spiritual authority and thus would pray and intercede for the people. And he would present God's directions and oracles to King Saul. Now this role included calling Saul on the carpet on Jehovah's behalf if needs be. Samuel was essentially defining this new role of the prophet that would be utilized all throughout the era of the kings. And a prophet would become as official of an office in Israel as was king or high priest now. Now in his Address to the people that took place at this religious center of Gilgal, Samuel demonstrated not only his innocence and his faithfulness in discharging his duties these past decades as a judge of Israel, but also that his unjustifiable removal as Israel's political leader was a mistake that Israel was going to quickly regret. The ramifications of the people essentially replacing the judge Samuel with the king Saul was to reject God's form of government and administration of justice in favor of one the people invented and one they preferred, one that was modeled after their Gentile neighbors. The results were dire and the people were already beginning to understand the, or at least suspect the magnitude of their folly. Thus with the people of Israel instinctively understanding that now there was no return to the good old days of the judges. And the Lord saw what they had done in demanding a king as their wickedness and rebellion against him. So the logical question that was on their minds now was, what now? 
had the stiff-necked Israelites finally committed the unforgivable sin by demanding and receiving an earthly king? Would the Lord now simply retreat from them, abandon them to their fate? Let's reread a portion of 1 Samuel chapter 12 to get the answer to that question. We're going to find that both the situation and the solution reveal patterns that we'll recognize and that we need to apply to our lives. So open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12, which is on page 309 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. And we're going to start reading at verse 12. Chapter 12, verse 12. When you saw that Nachash, the king of the people of Ammon, was attacking you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, when Adonai, your God, was your king. Now, here's the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, Adonai has put a king over you. Now, if you will fear Adonai and serve him and obey what he says and not rebel against Adonai's orders, if both you and the king ruling you remain followers of Adonai, your God, then things will go well for you. But if you refuse to obey what Adonai says and rebel against Adonai's orders, then Adonai will oppress both you and your leaders. Now, therefore, hold still and see the great deed which Adonai will perform before your very eyes. Now is the wheat harvest time, isn't it? I'm going to call on Adonai to send thunder and rain, and then you'll understand and see just how wicked from Adonai's viewpoint is the thing you have done in asking for a king. Shmuel called to Adonai, and Adonai sent thunder and rain that day. Then all the people became very much afraid of Adonai and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray to Adonai your God for, for your servants so that we won't die. Because to all of our other sins, we've now added this evil as well, asking for a king over us. Shmuel answered the people, don't be afraid. You have indeed done all of this evil. Yet now, just don't turn away from following Adonai, but serve Adonai with all your heart. Don't turn to the side, because then you would go after useless things that can neither help nor rescue. They're so futile. For the sake of his great reputation, Adonai will not abandon his people because it has pleased Adonai to make you a people for himself. Now as for me, far be it from me to sin against Adonai by ceasing to pray for you. Rather, I will continue instructing you in the good and right way. Only fear Adonai. Serve him faithfully with all your heart. For think what great things he's done for you. However, if you insist on doing wicked things, you will be swept away, both you and your king. Verses 14 and 15 carry a familiar tone, the covenant tone. Basically, those two verses sum up the underlying conditional basis for the covenant of Moses by using the standard if-then formula. And as usual, the possibility of a divine blessing is first declared, in this case by Samuel as God's oracle. So he says, if you will serve Adonai, if you will fear Adonai, serve him, obey what he says, and not rebel against Adonai's orders, both you and the king ruling you remain followers of Adonai your God, 
then things will go well for you. And just as in the ancient covenant, the consequences, the curses for violating Yehovah's instructions are next pronounced. But if you refuse to obey what Adonai says and rebel against Adonai's orders, then Adonai will oppress both you and your leaders. You know, it's impossible for me to bypass this passage without a comment on a dangerous and erroneous doctrine that is prevalent in Christianity and it's weakened and harmed us terribly. The doctrine says that Christians should have no fear of God since we bear no divine consequences for our rebellion or sin against Him. And this is because Yeshua has already paid for it all. This is a doctrine that says that God loves us so much on account of Christ that He will never act against us. God will not discipline you. He will not punish you. If you're redeemed, no matter how great your sins, folks, that simply doesn't bear up to what we just read. It doesn't bear up to the biblical pattern and it doesn't bear up to the New Testament. Over and over in the Tanakh, we find the Lord punishing His people, usually not by eternal separation, not by a cancellation of their redemption, but rather by using His, and by definition Israel's, enemies as a means to punish and discipline. Typically, Israel was punished for its transgressions by means of foreign oppression. But on a couple occasions, that oppression rose to downright exile. You know, God generally does not punish us directly, like I'm referring to God's supernatural wrath, like with Sodom and Gomorrah. But neither did he do so in the Old Testament, except on a rare occasion. There are precious few times when we read of such things as the Lord opening up the earth to swallow the rebels, or sending a plague of poisonous snakes to bite the trespassers. More often, he simply uses the wicked nations for his purpose of exacting a memorable and hopefully corrective toll for Israel's rebellion. And then in a kind of divine irony, he'll turn around and smite the people he used to punish his. Now it's no different today. Yeshua died for the eternal and spiritual consequences of our sins. But unless we remain obedient to God, we can and will suffer his heavy hand in this present life. Recall the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Pretty severe. Matthew 7.22 On that day many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles in your name? Then I'll tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Romans 11.22 Take a good look at God's kindness and severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off, but on the other hand, God's kindness towards you. Provided, if, then, provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you're going to be cut off too. 
The common saying in the church today is that the Lord no longer punishes us. Instead, he just allows natural consequences. But notice, this is also generally what happened to Israel in the Old Testament. Israel lived in a God-provided and God-protected state of shalom for as long as God chose to keep his hand of blessing upon them. And this condition of blessing was entirely contingent upon their obedient and trust in him. If, then. But when they were disobedient and they crossed over some line in the sand as defined by the Lord, God lifted his hand of blessing and protection and let the natural consequences of a, an aggressive and violent tyrant overcome them for a time or perhaps let a natural drought take hold or a natural pestilence invade or some other such thing. Another natural consequence for sin was that while a Hebrew could in most cases ritually atone for his trespass by means of an altar sacrifice, many times first there was a penalty to pay as prescribed by the law of Moses. It could be paying reparations in the form of money or property. It could be turning oneself over for a time of servitude to the person who had been aggrieved. It could mean excommunication from the community for a while, or maybe forever. Usually when a modern Christian theologian speaks of the natural consequences of our sin, he or she is referring to how that particular sin against God might also violate a civil or criminal law of our society. And thus, we pay a fine or maybe we lose our liberty for anywhere from a few days to a few years to the remainder of our lives. If we commit adultery in America, a sin but no longer a crime, we don't go to jail or pay a fine. But the law does see such a thing as a contractual violation and thus gives our spouse the right to legally divorce us, another so-called natural consequence. More often than not, with devastating and long-reaching effects that can harm a lot more people than merely ourselves. The best law for any society is God's law, even though none adhere to it. But in ancient Israel, God's law, the Torah, was at least theoretically the law of the land. That was both the civil and the religious law. So the natural consequences for sin, and by the way, the biblical definition of sin is to violate God's law, was the same then as, as it is now, especially as applied to God's worshipers. And by the way, who was God's law intended for in ancient times for the redeemed for the redeemed of Israel God's law wasn't for the unredeemed it wasn't for the Philistines or the Amorites or the Egyptians well Christians as the redeemed of God remain subject to earthly consequences for our sins as directed by the Lord. It's just that the atonement for the spiritual and eternal effects of it have already been provided in Messiah.
When we sin, we don't have to take a lamb or a goat to an altar. But, depending on the nature of the sin and the circumstances, there is as often as not a real and tangible consequence. The Lord freely gives us the blessing of shalom in exchange for our obedience and trust in Him. But when we sin to some level that causes Him to react, His natural reaction is to lift His hand of blessing off of us. For our shalom to be removed, or at least part of it. And thus those things that we had formerly been supernaturally protected from are now free to oppress us. Now you can call that a natural consequence as a way around this erroneous doctrine that God doesn't punish Christians, I suppose. But if that's the case, then it was also natural consequences that the ancient Hebrews faced for their transgressions. So I guess the natural consequences rhetoric that seeks to erect a wall between the Old Testament and the New Testament reactions of God to our sin kind of loses its meaning, doesn't it? All consequences of sin are and have always been essentially natural consequences. Now I discussed this topic with you for a couple of reasons. First, because I wanted to discredit a decidedly false but mainstream doctrine that needs to be jettisoned from the mindset of the church. And second, because it sets the stage for what is about to come momentarily in the next few passages of 1 Samuel chapter 12. Now, starting in verse 16, Samuel is going to give us an informative glimpse into how the Lord operates. A demonstration that indeed Samuel is God's prophet and we're going to receive some divine instruction on something pretty important. What are we to do after we've gone astray and the conditions that have much to do with our lives have been irreversibly changed and not for the better? as a result of our blatant sin. What do we do now? We've been unfaithful to our spouse. They've divorced us. Our family has broken apart. Now what? We've stolen that car. We're in jail. We'll have a criminal record for the rest of our lives. Now what? We've walked away from God. Sought nothing but personal pleasure and in doing so got into illicit drugs and sex. We've lost our job, our home, our reputation. Now what? But first, in order for Israel to see how close and connected God's prophet Samuel is to God, Samuel proposes a demonstration. This story takes place in the time of the annual wheat harvest. This means it's early summer. And in Canaan, the rains have ceased and only rarely does any moisture drip from the sky. Samuel tells Israel that immediately it's going to cloud up thunder and rain. 
And that the reason he's calling on the Lord to do this is for them to understand just how egregious of a thing they have done in demanding a human king to be placed over them. Well, the the demonstrations constructed around the weather for a couple of reasons. First, the ancients believed that thunder came from the gods. The Bible even uses thunder as a metaphor. The idea is that thunder is God's unseen spiritual wrath in heaven that he's about to pour out physically upon the earth. In other words, the thunder is a warning. Look out below. So when the thunder happened, it scared the living daylights out of the Israelites listening to Samuel at Gilgal. Second, rain is a blessing. Except when it happens in harvest season, which it's not supposed to. And third, just like in Egypt, when God used natural things in supernatural ways to smite the Pharaoh, so it is that rain's not unheard of in the summer in Canaan because they do have the occasional brief thunderstorm. But to have it rain all day and to do so at Samuel's command showed the supernatural element behind it. Needless to say, Samuel had their attention by the end of that day. And Israel fully understood the grave nature of their foolishness and the highly offensive thing that they had done in rejecting God as their king in favor of a a mere human. They begged Samuel to intercede, to plead with Jehovah not to kill them. They confessed not only this particular evil deed, demanding a king, but also the wickedness that had led them to this dreadful decision. But rather than Samuel giving them more bad news and shaking his finger and condemning them and telling them that they can only expect the worst from here forward, the crowd is startled when they hear from him, don't be afraid. Now, so important and pertinent to our own lives is what Samuel says to the people of Israel. I want us to read this passage yet again together. Pick your Bibles back up again. 1 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to start reading at 20. Follow with me, please. This matters to you. Samuel answered the people, don't be afraid. You have indeed done all this evil, yet now just don't turn away from following Adonai, but serve him with all of your heart. Don't turn to the side, because then you'd go after useless things that can't help or rescue. They're so futile. For the sake of his great reputation, Adonai will not abandon his people, because it's pleased Adonai to make you a people for himself. As for me, far be it from me to sin against Adonai by ceasing to pray for you. Rather, I will continue instructing you in the good and right way. Only fear Adonai. Fear Adonai. Serve him faithfully with all of your heart. For think what great things he's done for you. However, if you insist on doing wicked things, you will be swept away. Both you and your king. See, here's the thing. God, through Samuel, is concerned that since 
What Israel has done is so terrible and apparently permanent. And the depth of their evil deed will have such widespread and long-term effect and the people are starting to realize that. That they'll just throw up their hands in despair and give up. Now this concern is one that many of us in this room or who are listening may have confronted with may be confronted with right right this very minute. That you're thinking, I've done such evil in my life. Even doing great evil as a redeemed person who knows Jesus as Savior. How can God still love me? Why would the Lord still put up with me? How can it possibly be that in this seemingly bottomless pit of diminished circumstances in which I now find myself, circumstances caused by my own destructive behavior and attitude, that I have any reason for hope. Hope for a better future or even hope for a restored relationship with God. And here is Samuel's, God's, answer to this humanly insolvable dilemma. Just don't turn away from following Yehovah. Serve Him with all of your heart. Let me paraphrase this. You have indeed done great evil. Now, just don't turn yourself over to it. You have done a wicked thing. But the Lord has not abandoned you. So don't abandon Him. You know, humans are the oddest creatures. I can't tell you the number of people I've known or counseled who have either either decided or are on the verge of deciding that what they have done now destines them for hell. So they may as well live like it. They were doomed. God had disposed of them and they knew they richly deserved it. So they may as well eat, drink, and be merry because what else is there to live for? You know, little upsets and angers me more than to hear a believer or worse, a Christian leader say that grace didn't exist until the New Testament era. That statement is either one of utter ignorance of the scriptures or it's an act of purposeful blindness. A rebellion meant only to fulfill a man-made denominational doctrine of some sort. If what we're reading right now isn't about divine grace, then grace doesn't even exist. And by the way, grace goes back to creation. And when we can read about the Lord bestowing His grace when human merit was nowhere present over and over in the Torah. By God's grace, here in 1 Samuel, Israel is forgiven for this amazing affront to God. And all he requires is for them to reestablish their trust and faith in him and to demonstrate their sincerity by means of obedience to him. And how is this obedience to be demonstrated? By scrupulously following his ways as defined and already established in his Torah. 
It's there for us to read and examine to this very day. Now, their circumstances might not change. But they could set their hearts on God and be faithful even within these circumstances. The second part of God's and Samuel's concern is expressed beginning in verse 21. The concern is that on the one hand, if Israel's convinced they are doomed and with no hope, they will seek to replace Jehovah with false gods of the region, which amounts to placing their hope in nothing. And on the other hand, if they want to stick to God Almighty, in their great desire to show repentance and sincerity, they just might be tempted to do all sorts of wacky, hollow, meaningless things that accomplish absolutely nothing. Things that do not add to their righteousness, do not atone, and are not at all demanded by God. And the effect of either of those two bad choices is to wind up even further from the Lord, offending Him even more. And yet, those two choices are probably the most common ones that believers choose when we have greatly sinned and our guilt has overwhelmed us. God merely says, come home. Grace. Come home. The door is open. But you must come home on God's terms, not yours. You know, God's terms seem too easy so they just don't satisfy our human desire to do something big. God's terms are the terms that have always been, but we want to do something new and spectacular. Sell our house and drop a hundred grand in the collection plate. Shave our heads, put on an itchy brown burlap robe and check into a monastery. Pray 12 hours a day. I've known people who have quit their jobs, they've left their families behind penniless, and then go on a mission. All the while thinking they're doing a righteous thing that will show the Lord just how serious they are about wanting to please Him. Folks, it's this same kind of misguided mentality that has kept millions, maybe billions, of men and women from even coming to Messiah in the first place. The New Testament calls this the stumbling block. It is that faith, trust, and love of God through Yeshua are the only requirements for redemption. Anything we try to add to it but demeans it. However, for the bulk of mankind, faith is just too easy. It doesn't satisfy our want to do something. It makes us feel as though we've somehow merited our salvation through deeds and expressions of worthiness. Samuel knew his people very well and that they would immediately begin to think of countless actions to work their way back into God's good graces, none of which had any value before Yehovah. And you know what? Those ways were bound to look suspiciously, like the ways their pagan neighbors would attempt to get back into the good graces of one of their gods 
that they thought they might have offended. So here's the good news. God is going to conditionally forgive Israel for rejecting him and choosing a human king to rule over them. But there's also another piece of information supplied that although not new, is humbling all over again. Verse 22 says, For the sake of his great reputation, he will not abandon his people. You know, sometimes it's implied by theologians that everything God does, he does it for our benefit. That's not true. The protection of his holiness and his holy name easily outweighs our needs and well-being. The protection of his holiness and his name is paramount. His concern is less for the people of Israel who have knowingly and purposely violated the covenant and if not for his decision of grace they'd be done for but rather it's to uphold his holy name in fact Samuel will continue to intercede on Israel's behalf not so much for Israel's sake but as for the sake of God's reputation so in verse 23 Samuel reiterates that he will continue to be an intercessor for Israel because to do otherwise would be a sin added to his account. This is just another way of saying I'm not going to intercede for you because you deserve it. I'm going to intercede for you because that's the assignment God gave to me and for me not to do it, that would be my sin. Leaders, especially of congregations, I'm speaking specifically to you now, so please hear this. When your people speak against you, show you disrespect or ingratitude, gripe and are never satisfied, you are not given permission by God to abandon your post. When people you have taught, cried with, loved, cared for, served for years, when they hurt you, they demand more from you than you can possibly give, you must not stop striving to lead them in the ways of righteousness. Rather, you must persevere all the more. Because obviously your people need it all the more. Easy? Hardly. But perhaps you can look at things another way. If you don't see the people reciprocating in an appropriate way to your dedication to them, maybe you can see that for God's unfathomable reasons, it remains your holy job to teach them the ways of the Lord and to care for them on behalf of our Savior. And it'd be sinful for you to do otherwise. Let's move on to chapter 13. Saul was some amount of years old when he began to reign and he had ruled Israel for two years when he chose 3,000 of Israel's men. 2,000 of them were with Shaul at Michmash and in the hills of Bethel 
And a thousand were with Yohanan in Gibeat Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent back to their respective tents. Jonathan assassinated the governor of the Philistines in Geba. The Philistines heard of it. So Shaul sounded, uh, had the shofar sounded throughout the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard that Shaul had assassinated the governor of the Philistines and thus made Israel a stench in the nostrils of the Philistines. So the people rallied behind Saul and Gilgal while the Philistines assembled themselves together to make war on Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and an army as large as the number of sand grains on the seashore. They came up and pitched camp at Michmash, east of Bet-Avon. The men of Israel saw that their options were limited and that the people felt so hard-pressed that they were hiding themselves in caves, thickets, crevices, watchtowers, cisterns, while well, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the territory of Gad and Gilead. But Saul was still in Gilgal, where all the people were eager to follow him. He waited seven days, as Samuel had instructed, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal. So the army began to drift away from him. Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished sacrificing the burnt offering, there was Samuel. He had come, and Saul went out to meet and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Shaul answered, Well, I saw that the army was drifting away from me, that you hadn't come during the time appointed, and the Philistines had assembled at Michmash. I said, Now the Philistines will fall on me at Gilgal, and I haven't asked the favor of Adonai. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You did a foolish thing. You didn't observe the commandments of God, which he gave you. If you had, Adonai would have set up your kingship over Israel forever, but as it is, your kingship will not be established. Adonai has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And Adonai has appointed him to be prince over his people because you did not observe what Adonai had ordered you to do. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Givat Benjamin. Let's stop there. Recall that at our introduction to Samuel, I said that it was not a matter of if Israel would have a king, but of who, when, and at the unction of whom. The book of Judges was showing Israel and us that as humankind, our nature requires that we need to be ruled by a king. However, the proper king for us to be ruled by is God. And in the end, that's what's going to happen after we've gone full circle. Yet since it is the people of Israel who are wanting a visible, tangible human king, this is the wrong circumstances. And since it's people who want a human king, they automatically want want him for all the wrong reasons. And look for all the wrong attributes. And long for all the wrong hopes. The story of King Saul, then, is the story of the anti-king. 
This is the record of a king, the first king of Israel, who does what is right in his own mind. A king who hatches his own doctrines. Then he attributes them to God. And then abides by those instead of God's word. A king who pays lip service to the Torah, but otherwise trusts his own heart to God's laws. Watch Saul in operation. Because many of his ways will be patterned in the Antichrist, who is also just another anti-king. Verse 1 reads quite differently, depending on your translation or version. If you have a King James version, it will say something like, Saul reigned one year and when he had reigned two years over Israel. The New American Standard Bible says Saul was 40 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 32 years over Israel. Many other versions like our complete Jewish Bible simply omit Saul's age, even though his age is obviously called for. What's going on here? Why this variation? First, the bottom line. We don't know how old Saul was when he first became king. We have no ancient source documents or manuscripts in which the numbers provided. Certainly this is some kind of copyist error or omission. But it probably happened well before 250 B.C., because that's when the Greek Septuagint was written and even then it was omitted. Probably because whatever Hebrew document they were using to translate from down in Alexandria, Egypt, also didn't have it. So if your version has a number for either Saul's age or the amount of time he reigned, it was inserted in modern times by means of a guess. Now that said, he probably was around 40 years old because he had a grown son, Jonathan. It's far more likely that if 40 isn't close, he's older than 40 rather than younger. So we need to picture a man in King Saul at this time as a man in early middle age. And then in verse 2, we see the setting for the first war Saul led as the recognized sitting king of Israel. Now I remind you that while Saul was king over all Israel, he and his tribe of Benjamin were part of the eight-tribe northern coalition of Israelite tribes. So we're going to find that he operates in his stories almost exclusively in the territory north of Judah. Now, not only did a ridge of rugged mountains um, physically and geographically separate the north from the south, but Judah never really warmed up much to Saul as their king, mostly for political reasons. So, while as of this time, Judah and Simeon, representing the southern coalition of Israelite tribes, uh, weren't openly opposing him, they certainly weren't interested in propping him up either. If something happened that Saul was deposed, it wouldn't have broken their hearts. Thus, these 3,000 men that were divided into a group of 1,000 and another 2,000 were almost certainly troops from Benjamin and from the northern tribes. Now, verse 3 
is the real start of the story because it explains why Saul and 2,000 of his men were in Michmash and another 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. Now recall that Gibeah was Saul's family's hometown. The situation is this. The Philistines were growing more powerful and had regained a foothold in Israel's land holdings. Samuel had pushed them back. All right, and struck them down hard enough to put a, put, put a real crimp in their plans of expansion some years earlier. But if the Philistines were going to expand their sphere of influence, it, it was going to have to be to the east because they were currently occupying mainly just a strip of land along the Mediterranean seacoast. I mean, that was nice. They were seafarers and sea merchants. But in order to have something to export and a place to sell what they could buy from those incoming ships, they needed land trade routes. And all the land was to the east, towards Canaan. Now that put Israel directly in the crosshairs. The Philistines seemed to have been pretty pragmatic folks with wealth in mind and not so much empire building. They really weren't interested in adding Israel's land holdings, Canaan, to what they currently occupied. But they did want to lord over as many areas in Canaan and control the people and have access to farm produce and labor. And these crisscrossing trade routes that went all through Canaan um, were important to build their wealth. Thus we find that early on in Saul's kingship, the Philistines had established a fort in Saul's hometown of Gibeah. And they even had a governor or an administrator stationed at a nearby place called Gibah. Apparently the Philistines had overreached. They had aroused too much hostility in Israel. And now that Saul was king, he decided he was going to try and push the Philistines back again. But understand, King Saul still did not have a professional standing army. His army was a militia that served according to each tribal leader's whim and benefit. Many of the tribes and clans cut their own deals with the Philistines so that not being harmed was perhaps their main benefit. If a Hebrew soldier couldn't see what was in it for him or for his family or for his tribe, he really wasn't very interested in putting his life on the line for King Saul. Now as much as history changes... The ways of men never do. King Saul needed some kind of a crisis. He needed a national cause as an impetus to get or at least some of the tribal leaders to encourage their members to go and fight for Saul in order to push back those Philistines. Saul's son took it upon himself and he went to Gibeah and he assassinated the Philistine leader in charge of that area. Now this infuriated the Philistines. Just like throwing a stone into a relatively calm anthill, the wounded Philistines decided it was time to take off the gloves and come after Israel hard. Now King Saul had his crisis. Thank you, son. It would be hard for any tribal leader in the area to not send troops since the Philistines were coming for retribution and to try to stake out a little stronger foothold in the process. 
We'll continue from here next week.